welcome to the Popcorn Junkies. We are reviewing Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Yes, the fifth Indiana Jones films film has finally landed. Can you believe it? I never ever thought we'd see so many. Oh God, that, that back in 1981, I must have been, well, I must have actually only been 10 if it was a summer release uh, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. And it was like a blast of, where, where Star Wars was a sort of cosmic blast in the face of space dust, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was like a blast of sand in your face. It was just a brilliantly adventuresome, adventurous, uh, it was, you know, back then, I suppose, because travel wasn't such a ubiquitous thing, it felt like it was taking place in such foreign climes and such parts of the world that one could only imagine, and it was magical and mystical and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, really, I mean, one likes to think that uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark tapped into a sexy sort of, uh, you know, um, industry, if you like, uh, or activity, archaeology, but no, Raiders of the Lost Ark made archaeology sexy because, of course, Harrison Ford was in there. Of course, I'm an enormous Han Solo fan. I was ripped to shreds when Han Solo came to his his grisly end in um, in The Force Awakens. I, I, I just couldn't, I, I still haven't quite recovered from that. And so it was with trepidation and fear and worry that uh, I've approached Indiana Jones 5. Um, so of course there's been Raiders of the Lost Ark in uh, 1981, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which I don't remember at the time, came in for quite a bit of stick for being sort of culturally insensitive um, and archetypal and stereotypical. I, I wasn't as big a fan of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I, I do think that there's a general consensus of opinion that each of the Raiders films or Indiana Jones films have, have sort of, there's been diminishing returns with each iteration, potentially with the exception of, when I saw all four in a quadruple bill, I thought huge swathes of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, if you park the end to one side. There were parts of it which I thought were great, and there were huge parts of The Last Crusade in which uh, Sean Connery brought a much needed sort of uh, new vitality to it, I thought, and a sort of new gravelly kind of, uh, you know, just a sort of grouchy edge. So anyway, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, this is the, the one film that's not been directed by Spielberg, um, George Lucas, and he are exec producers on this. It's from, obviously, the universe, the world, the realm, but they are not, their hands aren't on the tiller. This is directed by James Mangold, um, who's, uh, you know, a capable pair of hands. He did Logan, he did Ford v Ferrari, he's done a whole host of other films too. So, so this is a big deal. This is a big deal, this film. Harrison Ford is 80, um, so, you know, five years older than he was even in The Force Awakens. So he's, he's old, he's, he's, he's old. Uh, this also stars Phoebe. Waller-Bridge, who for me I'm not an enormous fan of. She's a great writer. I can see and sense and feel the genius of Fleabag, though we watched it and didn't get on with it massively. It was all right. I didn't think it was as great as everyone was cracking on about. Loved Killing Eve, though, but I'm not a fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge on screen. I, I feel she's a sort of a sort of slightly more sophisticated version of Miranda, and and I'm not a fan of Miranda. So so that so she was not a selling point in this film. So I went into this thinking, mm, Phoebe Waller Bridge is in it. Harrison Ford at 80. I mean, quite simply, he's not going to be able to do as much as he could. Uh, and obviously, this film is much heralded for its uh, de-aging de de sort of technology and youthification. Um, but this also boasts Mads Mikkelsen as a villain, and I am a big Mads Mikkelsen fan. This film, in many ways, tries to structurally step, step by step, and point by point through the structural points of nearly all of the other Indiana Jones films. And by that. 
that, I mean, you know, we start this film with the end of another adventure, you know, that, that classic sort of motif of, you know, like in Raiders, we've got the ball that's rolling down behind him, that sees after some other kind of antiquity there. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple Doom starts with that wonderful scene in the sort of, is it Shanghai Dance Club, and there's the, the poison and he needs the antidote, you know, that was another story, uh, and so on and so forth. And so this one starts with, I think it was the Lance of Longinus or something, the Lance that said, allegedly drew the blood of Christ or pierced the skin of Christ or something like that. Um, and this was good. I was getting all the right vibes at the beginning of the film. It's Nazis. I mean, one, what one has to say is the Nazis make fantastic villains. You know where you stand with Nazis. And I think what makes them so villainously villainy and villainousy and so brilliant as kind of cinematic villains is that we know they were real. We know that they did some of the most god-awful things, and that's not what makes them good. So, But we believe their villainy. It's hard not to believe how villainous a Nazi can be in a film, because they were that nasty. So this starts well. This starts well. It starts with a Nazi scene, but we are using a de-aged Harrison Ford. We are, And the problem I have with all this de-aging thing is that all I end up doing is sitting there looking at the face, like I did with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. No, they've de-aged him. So it kind of, because I know it's not real, whether I want to or not, my brain is going, I'm not being able to just sort of like, you know, jettison sort of believe. I'm going, oh, this is, this is, this isn't Harrison Ford. Um, we've got a train, we've got a Nazi train, we've got Nazi soldiers. Um, we're introduced to Mads Mikkelsen, who's this kind of astrophysicist type, Nazi type. Um, so he's bedded in as a kind of an original villain. Toby Jones is in there as kind of Harrison Ford's little kind of sidekick, kind of working buddy, co-archaeologist, tiny, bald, kind of useless, but kind of funny. Um, the, the film delivers its funniest line in this opening sequence where one of the kind of, you know, German officers, Stooges, very sort of seriously says to Toby Jones' character, uh, you are a bird watcher. Yes, I didn't say it in a French accent. So, uh, so you are a bird watcher. And he said, yes, actually, the wagtails are doing all sorts of things at this time of year in this area. And I, I laughed out loud. I thought, mum, that was one for my mother there. You know, a, a bird watching joke right, right at the beginning. And quite, you know, so within the first 15 to 20 minutes, you're in Nazi, it's Harrison Ford, it's okay, it's a young Harrison Ford, but there was something about him that wasn't him. I mean, apart from the fact that it wasn't his face. I mean, he's quite a statically expressive faced kind of actor. He doesn't, I mean, part of his shtick, Harrison Ford, is not doing too much with his face. But in this instance, the fact that he couldn't do too much with his face kind of defeated the purpose, because sometimes you can think, oh, that's Harrison Ford not doing something with his face, which in and of itself is doing something with his face. But in this instance, he wasn't, because it wasn't his face. So I couldn't get past that. But anyway, so you get into the kind of action, but train, it was very dark. I don't know if anyone else found these early sequences very dark and I couldn't work out whether often when a film with which is reliant on digital effects, CGI, special effects and all this kind of stuff, you know, when they're wanting to kind of reduce the costs and, and kind of fudge the expertise of the special effects, they go for a more darkly lit sequence because then of course you can't see as much and so you can't question as much. And so if rendering isn't quite as well executed, it's not gonna be as glaringly obvious. And I felt a bit of that in this open scene. I was getting I was getting frustrated that I couldn't see more clearly. But right from the get-go, so we've got, you know, it's, this film really is, it's like, you know, they have these things called, uh, are they called Easter eggs? that are sort of parked within films, which are references out to other films and people who watch, you know, you go collecting Easter eggs. It's like, oh yeah, 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 that's a reference to that. And that in the background on the top of the thing over there was a, something, the reference back to something. Well, in this film, it's kind of narrative Easter eggs for me, or structural Easter eggs, um, which kind of are echoing and sort of riffing on all of the traditions of other Indiana Jones films. One of them is, you know, the, the great moment where Indiana Jones at some point has 
has to it has to sort of pretend he's a German officer and in this film it happens with him in a car and he puts on a sort of German sort of you know helmet army soldier helmet uh, and he looks bemused how am I going to get away with this and he gets away with it and all that kind of stuff and they've got stupid Nazis believing he's a Nazi and all that kind of stuff so it was kind of already I already felt the idea that this was trying to riff on part you know on the past structural motifs of other Indiana Jones films but this opening, this whole opening sequence, this whole opening scene was really, a, you know, the first opportunity to really kind of get into the saddle, sit in the saddle. And you know, Indiana Jones sits in a few saddles of horses in this film. Um, but this was a chance to really get into the saddle of a new Indiana Jones film um, and, and just get to grips with it, hold the reins and be, and be drawn along on a journey. And it wasn't all bad. It was, um, I think it, had, it was less hammy. I mean, I think one of the things I liked about, like, the opening scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Marion, you know, his love interest is in the ice area and she's drinking the guys under the table and then obviously the German officer comes in and burns his hand. No, those setups, they were real sets and they, they had real kind of props and it was real action and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I think one of the things that, you know, this film falls foul of is it felt very enclosed and very sort of claustrophobic and it felt very sort of where there was a world beyond the immediate set, it often felt very green screened and not real. It didn't feel like even, you know, the sets were parked within a real world. It felt quite... I don't know, it sort of felt very dark. I mean, I don't mean, well, it is editorially dark and thematically dark, but also quite literally, it felt very dark at the beginning. But obviously, um, you know, we, right at the front here, we, it, it's kind of notified, it, we, are, we are told, it's indicated to us that they've stumbled across this brilliant piece of kit that comes in two halves, which is going to be the thrust of the film, which is going to be the dial of destiny, let's face it, which is Archimedes's, let me get the word right, Antikythera, Antikythera, Antikythera? Antikythera, great word. So essentially, Archimedes is this time travel machine that can that can identify a fissure. I love that word, a fissure in time, and can, and allows you to kind of to travel towards it and travel through it. And so this becomes the Dial of Destiny. And, and in essence, this is a Indiana Jones. This film is all about time. It's all about the passage of time. It's about the loss of time. It's about time's past. It's about getting old. This film. It's about Indiana Jones becoming an old man. And that's where we then cut to. We then cut to really in the film proper we've had the sort of end of this earlier adventure which tees up everything else um, and we have an elderly Indiana Jones he's in an apartment uh, the Apollo 11 crew have arrived so you've got this sort of you know we've got all the kind of hullabaloo and excitement of the new frontier is out in space and the old frontiers are underground and buried and uh, you know no one wants to dig stuff up anymore people want to go look through telescopes and head off into space I mean that wasn't overly sold to us but I, I feel that that was kind of you know a potential theme in there somewhere the idea that you know archaeology is old and dusty which it literally is and space is bright and shiny and up, up in the skies and all that kind of stuff. But we find Indiana Jones in a bedsit. Curious, I don't know. I mean, really down on his life. I don't know why he's in such a sort of shithole. Uh, and we see an incredibly unflattering portrait of him. Naked, top body. He's drunk too much. He's craggy. He's old. His body's old. It's an old body, though, to be fair. I wouldn't mind having a body like his at the age of 80. He goes off. He's got he's got hippie neighbours who are just annoying, to be frank. I'd, I'd have found fucking annoying, too. So, uh, you know, you know, all fair play to him and all that kind of stuff. But we, we discover quite quickly that his son, uh, obviously Shia LaBeouf's character, died in Vietnam. He's, he's divorced. He's no longer with Marion, his love interest from the first film um, and uh, and we're essentially in a sort of real gritty 1960s New York and at this point I had quite an existential moment guys and I had a moment at this point which kind of I couldn't then shake from the rest of the film um, I had this sort of realization that and it's a dark one and it's a depressing one and it's one that was kind of flicked into play when uh, he died as Han Solo but I was I was thinking at this point as I saw him stumbling around his flat I thought Harrison Ford is gonna die 
And I, I'm not prepared for this. I'm not prepared for this. And it might sound like I'm being a bit facetious, but I'm not. He's been a mainstay as a paternal cinematic character in my life for years. So so I was struggling. You know, we have an old Harrison Ford. Um, he's a loner. He's miserable. He's drinking too much. He's, he's, he's old. He's physically old. He's mentally old. His career's over. He's been encouraged or ushered into early, early retirement. His students are no longer batting their eyelids with the words, love you. They're just bored, fucking stupid, bored rigid in a lecture hall. So what happens? Phoebe Waller Bridges comes in, and this I have to say, I have to confess, at the point that Phoebe Waller Bridges arrives, she's the god, she's the she's his goddaughter, the daughter of Toby Jones's character, who has subsequent to the opening adventure gone mad and died, uh, having been sent mad trying to work out Archimedes' uh, you know time travel instrument. She's she's savvy, she's intellectual, she's bright, but she's also a, a trader on the dark markets, on the black markets of antiquity. So she's kind of a bit like Harrison Ford's character, Han Solo. You know, she, she's got no loyalty to anyone. She's only got loyalty to herself. So Indy reveals to her that he's actually kept half of Archimedes' time-travelling thing, even though Toby Jones is, you know, her father said get rid of the bloody thing. He's kept it, because of course, what is Indiana Jones's age-old phrase? Just put it in a museum. That needs to be put in a museum. Well, it was put in a museum. Well, it was put in the library of his college, actually. And at this point, we realise Mads Mickelson is a nasty fucking Nazi, who, who, although he had literally seven bells knocked out of him by a sort of uh, signal point on the train, hit him in the face and we thought he was dead. He's not dead, he's alive. He's alive and he's well. And his mission is to get both halves of Archimedes' time travel antikythera, pull them together, and he wants to time travel back to a point where he can kill Hitler and make a better, better fist, actually, make a better fist of being the Fuhrer. Um, so we essentially are offered the, the potential with Mads Mikkelsen's character of a man who believes he could be even more efficient and more villainous and more evil than Hitler himself, which can be no bad thing. And you've got, there's no better actor, really, than Mads Mikkelsen to do this. And to be fair, Mads doesn't have to do too much in this film or say too much to just ooze menace and, and, and nastiness and all that. So he's, 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 he's a great villain for Indiana Jones. Whether he's used enough and whether he hits the right targets or the right notes in this is another question. But he, he, the casting choice is, is a good one. And then we fall into what a lot of people are saying is one of their favourite sequences, this ticker tape parade, the Apollo 11, is it, ticker tape parade in New York. And Harrison Ford, you know, Mickelson's Stooges, henchmen, you know, these kind of big characters are kind of trying to kind of, you know, accost him. And it was at this point that you really, really realise that, well, in fact, my world came crashing in, if I'm brutally honest, because it was at this point with Mads Mickelson's henchmen flapping around and punching uh, Harrison Ford and trying to chase him. And then Harrison Ford pushes a number of, of shelves over to stop them that you realise, shit, I'm watching an octogenarian trying to fight and escape like he did in Raiders, and it's not working. And I think this is a problem. This, this was a problem. I think, you know, we were asked to believe that Harrison Ford could do this. And in fact, all I was getting was an old, um, often bemused, uh, lost, disorientated, incredibly vulnerable old man. Um, not really knowing quite what was going on and trying to run away to somewhere else. But... But he was all those things not in a good way. You know, it wasn't like thematically, oh, we're dealing with a vulnerable Harrison Ford here or Indiana Jones. No, he just looked like an old man, genuinely like, shit, what the fuck's going on? I can't move fast enough and I can't get through things quickly enough. And that for me, again, was a bit depressing. So, you know, to go from that to him leaping on a horse in the ticker tape parade and then riding the horse onto the uh, New York subway and then along a, a tunnel. I mean, it's, it's, these are the kind of scenes that you die for as a child. And you'd think, yeah, this is the daring do adventure of Indiana Jones. But for me, it just didn't, it, it's not about believing in terms of 
believability and of course none of this stuff is believable but it's, it's about believability even within the film and i think harrison ford himself his physicality disallowed me from engaging or actually investing in the scene I, a lot of people saying i mean what do you think guys the ticker tape scene i thought the cgi and the special effects on that were diabolically bad i mean on on our print it was so apparent i mean obviously he's been put on the horse uh, you know cgi you know with special effects and the, the backgrounds were special it was almost like watching a computer game it was almost like watching the background of one of those chapter points in a computer game and, and it was just like it just I, I didn't feel it was real it didn't feel real even though they'd given it that grain and they'd made it look like 1960s and all that kind of stuff it just didn't work for me at all lots of one-liners he was trying to deliver one-liners he was trying to deliver that ubiquitous harrison ford kind of bemused look which often does the trick you know especially like, you remember that famous moment where the guy pulls out the scimitar and does all his business and he just sort of stops pulls out his gun and shoots him there's a couple of moments in this where there's reverse moments of that where he pulls out his bullwhip does all this kind of twiddly kind of expert stuff and everyone else pulls out their guns i think it's in one of the trailers and that fell flat and he'd do these looks around which back in the day were enough to kind of get a laugh or get a knowing glance or a knowing feeling from you but it just felt like it was watching an old dog trying to perform not even new tricks but old tricks uh, in a new way and not quite hitting his target not helped by the fact, at least, least of all, by the fact that uh, it wasn't a particularly well-written script. Jess Butterworth is one of the script writers. What the fuck? He wrote fucking Jerusalem. The play, come on. I mean, they, they weren't funny. And you've got Phoebe Waller-Bridge in there. She's a comic genius, comic writing genius. And she was very involved in her role, by all accounts. Not very funny. Not very funny. Could have been funnier. The other films have been funnier in a sort of, as I say, in that sort of Saturday morning daring do camp. I think one of the things that's missing from things like, or you know, people forget with Star Wars and George Lucas's visions, actually, is a certain camp ridiculousness uh, to the proceedings, but also so believing in how ridiculous you are that you go for it. I was Nadia always says this thing: you've got to prepare to. If you want to, if you're going to make a fool of yourself, you've got to really be prepared to make a fool of yourself. Otherwise, you're going to fall flat on your face. And one of the problems I feel with this film, I'm going to park this thought now because it's a problem that really, for me became quite stark at the end of this film was that actually within this film there's some really good stupid but good ideas stupid narrative devices and plot lines around time travel and all this kind of stuff stupid but you felt and i feel in retrospect that in these earlier parts of the film the filmmakers and the director and the scriptwriter and what have you and the producers disney whatever lucasfilm what lacked confidence with how ridiculous the time travel narrative was because once it actually fires up towards the end that's actually what Raiders of the Lost Ark is about, is lunacy and ridiculousness. But ridiculousness done with total dedication and belief. And all the way through this film, I felt it didn't quite have the courage of its convictions to go with its own ridiculous narrative device, which is clearly you know, this time travel. Um, lots of moments in this film. Obviously, there's lots of moments which were, which were appealing to the kind of, you know, the young Indiana Jones fan. You know, Salah, the character played by John Rhys-Davies. Lovely to have him back in there. You know, it was a real kind of, oh, God, I remember. But again, old. And it's not to say I haven't got any problem with old, but it, there's a great sense of loss that came through this film for me. And I think a lot of it was from just realising, really, that time has passed on, which then begs the question. It's not a problem with age, but it's like, should we have made this? Or should we be doing this? Or... Should we have these characters around still necessarily? Or is it really important actually for the sanctity and the safety of these characters in cinematic history that they have their moment, they burn bright and they stay there? You know, you don't keep trotting out Judy Garland as, you know, in The Wizard of Oz again and again and again. She wouldn't be as special, would she? And I sometimes worry with these characters, the same thing kicks in.
For me, 1960s America didn't work. For me, Indiana Jones is always at its strongest and at its best when it's in sand, desert, or when it's underground. Um, I mean, we even have a scene in this film. I mean, the basically the film takes on a cat and mouse chase between Mads Mikkelsen chasing Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones has to kind of essentially reluctantly unite with Phoebe Waller-Bridge to escape and protect Archimedes's, you know, time travel instrument and all this kind of stuff. They then have a shared enemy, even though they're not quite together. It's a kind of there's argy bargy between their sort of companionship, which again is a sort of another motif with all of his, you know, female sidekicks in all of the Indiana Jones films. There's a sort of antipathy between them as much as there's a shared antipathy with the villainy of what's going on around them. Or circumstances within which they find themselves. But for me, Indiana Jones is always at its best when it's, it's in sand, in tunnels, uh, underground, or in the desert. And, and that's where there should be, or, or in German sort of bunkers, or in this sort of German infrastructure, a German tent. Let's not forget the brilliant scene in Raiders with a German tent, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know. And that, for me, there weren't scenes like, do you remember that wonderful scene in Raised Little Star where she gets drunk and she sort of entices and lures the, um, what's his name, the, the French archaeologist that the Germans are working with? And, and time was spent in with that scene. In this, it didn't feel like time was spent with many scenes. It was racing on to the next quite dark, sort of weird kind of interior, even when they were outside, like on the boat. So we've got Antonio Banderas rocks up as Indiana Jones's mate looking like he's walked straight off pantomime, straight out of either Puss in Boots slash pantomime. With a, he just sounded ridiculous, he looked ridiculous, I didn't believe him. They all go deep sea diving, which had a sort of sad, dark sort of echoes around the whole sort of Titan submersible thing. I couldn't escape associating the two, it was, it was a bit, bit difficult for me that. But the underwater scene wasn't great. So once again, even when Indiana Jones works underground, it's underground, it's not underwater. And even with this water scene, you know, with, with Antonio Banderas, it felt like it was too on the nose, it was too direct, their attempt to riff on, you know, the idea that Indiana Jones is scared of snakes, what do they do? There's eels, what are eels like? Water snakes, ah, oh, come on, you're turning a corner too obviously here. It was too obvious, it was too, it was too, it just, it tried too hard to kind of find that same echo, right down to even um, the character of Teddy, which is this sort of young Arab, uh, Moroccan boy, I felt they were trying to do something with him, which which was slightly paralleled with Kei Hui Kwan's character, short short round was it, in um, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Do you remember the great kind of chase scene in the underground mines where they're on the things? Well, they do something in this in the sort of, in the tut-tuts that are kind of going around through, but it was, it was long, it was boring, it wasn't inventive. Even the chase scenes weren't, weren't that inventive, and that was a frustration for me. At times, you know, at the centre of this, there's this really sad character, Indiana Jones, a sort of disorientated old man watching things fly around around him. And at one point, he puts a bit of chewing gum on a vendor, on a fender and sort of repairs a tutu. And you sort of think, really, really, this, I don't know, this poor old man, will someone not look after him? I, I, I you know, all the way through, I wanted to look after him. I wanted to take him under my wing. I wanted to say, you know what, dust off your hat, mate. Rest up your bull whip. Chill out. You've done your bit. You've done your work. And the script really sagged for me at this point. And yet, and yet, this is... This is this is something that I really wanted to get to, and this this for me is is this film is a curious is a curious egg is a curiosity. This because where I'm about to go now seems to tug against everything I've just said. Because at this point we're talking very mediocre Indiana Jones film, very standard, very obvious, very unimaginative, quite leaden. Not an awful lot of music. They're great action scenes. I was thinking, where's John Williams's tune? I mean, I almost wondered whether the print we had lacked most of the music. It didn't even have sort of dramatic music amplifying the drama. So it was quite. 
It felt quite atmospheric. Was it? I didn't feel driven by John Williams's score, and I don't know if that was a decision that you know whether they said we can't keep doing the same old. Duh, 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 duh. But I didn't feel I got it too much at all. I don't know if anyone else did. It felt particularly absent, anyway. Um, and I do sometimes just just find I do sometimes worry that we've, we we seem to have forgotten that Indiana Jones is supposed to be ridiculous Saturday morning camp out there, you know, comic entertainment. You know, it's, it's like comic strip stuff. It's 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 you know it's not silly, but it's daring do. It's 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 not meant. It's not deep. It's not deep. And this film is very. For me, this film got really deep and it gets really deep towards the end. So here we go, final act of this movie. And I think this film had its richest sections, sequences and moments, bizarrely, in this final sort of act of the film where the time travel concept really comes centre stage. And we discover that obviously Matt Mickelson's desire to overthrow Hitler, etc, etc, uh, which in, in and of itself a ludicrous plot line. You're going to fly back in time with a piece of kit made by Archimedes, that you, you know, ludicrous. But if done with conviction and belief, which this film had to by the third act, it carries you with it. And so I started to be carried along with the lunacy of this. So due to tectonic plate movement, um, Archimedes hadn't even predicted that the, wherever they've marked it, they want to go to just before, you know, Hitler gets killed or, you know, where they want to go in time has shifted because the plates of the earth have shifted. And so they end up accidentally at the siege of Syracuse, uh, in the, uh, you know, during the, during the 212 BC or so or thereabouts, Roman Empire, Archimedes running around as, as big sort of, you know, ships are coming in and it's all just terrible. You know, like, like, the, like the drawn pictures from all your history books, it's just like a scene of Roman invasion and devastation and what have you. So this should have been the most ridiculous moment, and yet this became the most fascinating for me sequence in it, because what we were witnessing here was Indiana Jones, the archaeologist of cinematic history, being transported in time back to an archaeological moment or a historical moment that he will have studied the archaeological ruins of, and he's going to be in it and of it. And we had a moment where Mads Mikkelsen in the plane, they're all in a plane, they're all struggling to get out, they're all realising they're in the wrong era. And we had this moment, this, this look of realisation with Mads Mikkelsen when he realised he was in the wrong era that was just so good. It was so deep. It was so dark. It was like the moment at the end of Raiders of Lost Ark when they open the ark and suddenly they all go, oh my God, this is beautiful, but oh my God, this is going to kill us. And that man's face going, oh, and melts and all that kind of stuff. It was like that. But it, it, it was rushed through. We didn't get to sit with it for too long because they hadn't had the courage to actually really flesh out the backstory to this moment. I could have done with more of Mads Mikkelsen's desires. He just kept coming into scenes, reminding us that he was there to kind of time travel. And it was only when it was too late and they're on the fucking aeroplane and it's crashing into fucking ancient fucking Greece and Rome or what have you, that we get a sense of, oh my God, this guy's been thwarted, he's panic stricken. And so that was rich. So the film had been holding me almost behind his back, almost a bit embarrassed. It was almost like going, oh no, don't, 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 don't. it's all right. Yeah, don't worry about it. It makes sense. It makes sense, this time travel thing. And now the point that the time travel fucking concept had to be right in your face, it could have worked because this worked. And so we have this moment where Harrison Ford is essentially, um, or, you know, close to death, injured, um, has given up and has said to Phoebe, uh, I want to stay here. And this was such a dramatic moment. This was its strongest moment. It was the most meaningful moment in, in, in Indiana Jones's life. If you think that his life, his career, all these films have been about his passion for history, and suddenly he's in history. He's watching history. Archimedes is running towards him. He's watching the siege of Syracuse. He's in it. And he says, I want to stay here. And when he says that, I, I was heartbroken. I thought Harrison Ford did a sensational job of giving us a deep reservoir of loss, loneliness, isolation. He even says something along the lines of, what do I need to go back for? What have I got to go back for? His son's dead, he's not married, his college doesn't want him. Archaeology is a thing of the past, like archaeology. And so 
it really kicked to the back of the net an old man and what it means to get old and where one sits and stands in history. Now, I've seen some other people have said things like, you know, that's not what, that's not what an Indiana Jones film should be about. No, it shouldn't. That's not what we go to see on a Saturday morning for our sort of comic entertainment. No, it's not. But weirdly, this really felt like, the final 15 minutes of this film felt like the right, the accurate, the most meaningful sum up to a man's life that I've been invested in for years. I've, I've loved this world. I've loved his character. I believed every bit of dust and every leather buckle on his back. I believed it all, and this this is the end. This is a man at the end of his at the end of his journey, and he he wants to stay in history. Well, of course, Phoebe Waller Bridges doesn't let him, because if he, she does that, like every other film that's out at the fucking moment, The Flash, it's gonna he's gonna knock time all over the place, and suddenly everything's gonna go wrong, and everyone's gonna die and stuff like that. So she hits him in the face, and she drags him back to 1960s America. But that moment where he's on a he's on the promontory, he's on a mountain, he's we've seen Mads Mikkelsen's melted face a little bit of a back reference there to the melted face of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And you're thinking, oh, God, oh, God, you know, Indy, maybe you should have stayed there. And, and the wonderful sort of poetry around Indiana Jones think, thinking about and considering staying in history was this idea that he was considering himself, that he, he himself has become a relic. He, too, has become something dusty to be kept in a museum. And, and, and that's, his, that's what he feels his fate is, because he has nothing to come back to. He hasn't got love to come back to. He hasn't got connections to come back to. And suddenly he was moved to introspection. And, 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 and I thought that was incredibly powerful. I thought Harrison Ford did a great job there. And I thought this film in, inadvertently accessed really quite layered existential shit at this very kind of, at this convergence point of time travel, future, past, and now, and, and all that kind of stuff. And what the point of living now is and what, what makes life have meaning is relationships, right? That was rich. That was really rich. But I just feel, you know, I just felt all the way through, as this film came ground to a close, I just thought this film was embarrassed. This film was too embarrassed about the time travel device or the time travel story arc. And it just kind of turned its back on it. It just kind of tried to hide it. It kept denying it. It was like, it invited time travel to the party and then tried to keep sort of like telling it to sort of hide itself away. And no, don't look at him. Don't look, don't talk to my friend time travel. It's a bit embarrassing. And then we have this final, final moment in the film, which shouldn't have worked, but does. It did for me. I was crying for the whole final five to 10 minutes as Marion, you know, his partner from Raiders of the Lost Ark, his love interest, the mother of his son. She's back in the flat. She's been brought back. Um, he's potentially now not on his own. Um, and they have a scene where they're, they're looking at each other. And these are two old people. These these were, I was just hamstrung by watching and witnessing these two characters who've been a mainstay of my, uh, essentially my filmic imagination since the age of, what, 10? I thought I was 11, but I was, I was only 10. Uh, and they relived that whole lines of where he hurt. Do you remember on the tanker, on the trawler ship in the Razor Lost Art, where she's hurt him, he's been hurt in all the fights. And he says, she says, where does it hurt? And he says, here, and she kisses it. And, she, and then he says, here, and she kisses it, and he says, here. And they reverse it round, where she's been hurt. And he kisses her, where she's been hurt, where he kisses her. And then it's a very sad, it's a, it's a portrait of two old people holding each other in a kitchen, in a, in a, in a sort of bedsit in New York. And that's it. Reliving the lines of an old film. And, and, and so it was incredibly moving and emotional. But whether, that's why it hasn't done any good, any bloody business at the box office though. Who wants to see that? Who wants to be existentially poleaxed by Harrison Ford? An old man, considering staying back in time, want to go back in time to Syracuse. That's not going to sell tickets. And then two old duffers in a kitchen, kissing parts of their body. No one wants to see old people kiss. Oh, that's why it hasn't done well. But for me, for me, it spoke to me right there. And that has to be the end of Harrison Ford. That has to be the end of Indiana Jones. That was very sad. So I thought, ironically, it was it, this was a film that got much better towards the end. So if I was to score this film, which seems brutal, I would probably have to give this film 63.
out of a hundred. <laughs>